Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Here's the podcast for The Jeremiah Johnston Show. And don't forget, if you want your question read on the live show, go ahead and send it to me at www.askjjj.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Dr. John. Hello. Uh, hello. Uh, well, since you guys are Christian thinkers. Swing, I just want to leave that question. I wanted to get your input on that. Sure, appreciate it. Thank you. God bless. That's my question. So thanks a bunch. Thank you. Welcome to the Jeremiah Johnston Show, combining cutting-edge biblical scholarship with meaningful, thought-provoking discussions and practical answers to your questions. It's time to own your faith and be a Christian thinker with our host, author, Bible scholar, apologist, and president of the Christian Thinker Society, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. Welcome to the Jeremiah Johnston Show on Faith Radio Network. It's wonderful to have you tuning in with us today across the Central and Eastern Time Zone or listening digitally, online, and so many of you who catch us on demand through the podcast. I'm delighted to have you with us. I hope you're binging the show. I hope you're totally caught up to date on the Jeremiah Johnson show. We've had so many great conversations, so many interesting questions that we're answering. And the program is dictated by your questions that you submit to me either a through askjjj.com or so many of you, literally the thousands of hands that I shake and the people that I meet at our live Christian Thinkers Society events where someone will just say something to me one-on-one, I'll write it down in my notes and begin praying and meeting with our team strategically. And we just say, hey, what? guess what? We've got to build an entire program around those very important questions. Now, we have so many general questions that have been submitted to our program, and I wanted to take two weeks and just go through all the questions, or many of them. I can't, there's no way I could get through all, but many of the interesting questions. So we're going to have a random day, but it's going to be random fun because they're all interesting questions. And I know you're going to love it because at all of our Christian Thinker Society events, routinely what people enjoy the most about attending our CTS events is when we just go rapid fire through all the different questions that the audience has. So I've got them picked out, and I've asked my good friend, Professor Craig Evans, to join me because I don't want this to be a hour-long monologue. I want it to be a conversation, and you just pull up a chair with us, and we're going to be answering and discussing these questions, everything from biblical archaeology to salvation to assurance of salvation to the Bible to the person of Jesus, the historicity of the the historical Jesus, resurrection, crucifixion, all kinds of interesting discussions. I'm so delighted to have you with us today. Um, So you might want to just Grab something to write with if you can. Grab your Bible. We're going to be going through some very fascinating topics today on the Jeremiah Johnson Show, and we're going to go through it again next week. So this is going to be a fun two-part series within our the wider world universe of our show. I'm excited for all this information. I'm excited about what we're going to discuss. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, you're up with Craig Evans and myself taking your questions. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Jeremiah Johnson Show. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome to the Jeremiah Johnston Show, and I am joined today 
by one of our regular guests of this nationally syndicated program and podcast, somebody who I know the audience loves because across the country, uh, as I have opportunity to speak and to do book signings and just meet so many of you, I receive feedback um, like, oh, that was such an awesome show. Or, oh, you got to have that guest back. I love the discussion. And so Professor Craig Evans, my longtime friend and colleague, the distinguished professor of Christian origins, the Bassanio Distinguished Professor at Houston Baptist University, someone who is, in my opinion, in the opinion of others, the finest historical Jesus scholar in the English-speaking world, is joining us today in studio in Houston, Texas. Dr. Evans, it's so great to have you back on the program. Hey, glad to be here. Doc, we we did a discussion, a two-part series, and this is another new two-part series, but we did a two-part series on archaeology earlier this year. It's one of our most downloaded shows. In fact, we highlighted it in our recent montage, Um, and I I know you've just gotten off the boat. You just returned from a month in the Holy Lands, in the land of Israel, the Mediterranean. Any new developments, any any PSs you want to add to our previous programs, anything we need to know about in archaeology that perhaps we didn't cover? before? Well, actually, a couple of things. Uh, I was with archaeologist Ellie Shukron, who's been on your program, as as we all know. And I was with Ellie in Jerusalem just two weeks ago. And uh, he said, hey, I want to show you, we found some more of the road that uh, was widened and improved upon the walkway from the Pool of Siloam to the south, uphill to the Temple Mount, where people, of course, Jewish people would go to offer up sacrifice, to pray in the temple, and so on. Jesus and his disciples did the same thing. Well, this road was expanded and improved upon during the reign uh, or the rule of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea and Samaria. So Ellie was excited to show me and some of the people with me. We were actually in the drainage tunnel below it. We were actually on top of it. So what happens? I come home and it's in the news. And there it is making headlines around the world. Uh, Another section of this road that's been uncovered in recent years. In the news, people talking about it. I had to tell my students, guess what? We were there, didn't know we were making worldwide headline news, but we were there walking on this walkway (laughs) that probably in the year 30, 31 was expanded uh, at a time when Pontius Pilate was the governor. Wow. And so, I mean, for those that haven't been to the land of Israel, can you just give a few minutes again on why is it so important that you make the pilgrimage, as it were, you take time, you go to the expense to go see, walk where Jesus walked? I mean, what you just explained is just excellent. Well, you know, I've been to, uh, I've actually lost count it's, uh, at least 25 times uh, to Israel and other countries in the Middle East, the Mediterranean and so on. And there's something about being there where it all happened uh, and actually seeing what it really looks like. You get this idea in your mind, everything looks like the Sahara Desert or it's all sand or whatever. And then you go to the land and you actually see it. And you realize I didn't have a very accurate, uh, you know, mental image of it. There's that. But of course, uh, the archaeological work, you know, there are thousands of dig sites in Israel and many of them are uh, being worked on every single year. So it's impossible 
to go uh, for a couple of weeks each year and not see something new. It just plain, there's always stuff being dug up. And then you realize, oh, now we understand this better. And so there are all kinds of things in the Gospels that are talked about, certain places, villages, certain roads, certain hills, certain practices, customs, and so on. And then we find artifacts, we find synagogues, we find the remains of ancient villages, remains of roads, milestones, pottery, coins, etc., etc., and we can visualize better the biblical world. And of course, it keeps reinforcing a point I like to make when I lecture, and that's verisimilitude, that interesting mm. compound Latin word, verisimilitude, means that the narratives you find in the Gospels and the book of Acts really do resemble reality. They're true to the way things were. They talk about real people, real places, real events. And of course, then you realize, oh, no wonder archaeologists use Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and the book of Acts in the New Testament as reference points in doing their own work. They want to know where to dig. They want to understand what it is they've dug up. And so they'll use whatever ancient sources are available that they find reliable. And so the New Testament Gospels are found over and over again as reliable. So they use them. So anyway, you go there, you bring people. I I had 150 people with me in Israel just a few weeks ago. And, uh, of course, I stay in touch with them through email. That's what I do. And I send out a little newsletter. And I get responses from them. And it's always the same. Man, did that open up my eyes. I understand what it is I believe so much better. I understand Jesus and the Gospels so much better. I understand Israel's history so much better. I just didn't know it before. And I'm used to that. I've been hearing it for decades. And uh, it's very rewarding. I'll keep doing it because it benefits people so much. Okay, friends. Again, he's Professor Craig Evans. I want you to check out his website. It is craigaevans.com. You're going to see more information from this internationally recognized biblical scholar, professor, author, and excellent speaker, and a great media co-host as well. Um, We're dedicating this program and next week to your unanswered questions. So many questions that we've aggregated that you've submitted to this radio show, Jeremiah Johnston Show, through askjjj.com. If this is the first time uh, that you're joining us on Faith Radio, network or on the podcast i want to say welcome aboard this is the program that takes your questions seriously and we look at serious answers there's no question that goes unturned um dr evans i just returned from speaking in denver colorado not long ago i've been receiving this question quite a bit in different forms and i want to ask you to respond to it as a historical jesus scholar as a gospels scholar as someone who knows something of jesus in judaica atonement the old testament uh here's an email question from Bob that he says, I always get confused and even put off by the idea that it was necessary or even a good idea for God to come down in human form and sacrifice himself to atone for the human wrongdoing. I asked your honest opinion. Would you in good conscience, knowing that God has said, thou shalt not murder, think the murder of Jesus, a moral and ethical solution to absolve us of all wrongdoing? Wait, let's just pause right there and, and go with that. Well, you know, it's a very speculative kind of question. It asks for philosophical reflection. And by the way, the greatest minds in history have wrestled with it. The idea of the atonement. Uh, Was this necessary? Was that necessary? Perhaps there was another way of doing it. And we can go around and around and around. But the point is, 
from the very beginning, one of the very first commandments that humanity had from God was, look, there are lots of things you can do. This is your world. I've made it for you. Explore it. Learn what it is. Benefit from it. But there are some uh, there are some do's and don'ts. And so there is there is law that comes in into effect. And ultimately, the law is for our own good. God's not arbitrary. He's not. So, he's not a legalist. He he doesn't just revel in rules and that kind of thing. But things are there for our benefit. I think most of us would recognize that when you think through the Ten Commandments. They're for our benefit. You know, don't murder. Don't uh, don't commit adultery. Don't rape. Don't harm anyone. Don't steal. Don't lie, and so forth. It's for our own benefit. And uh, modern societies recognize that for the most part. So anyway, what humanity, of course, we are what we are, and we've got this free will. And uh, this is what creates the problem. Humanity has decided to, to go its own way. Humanity decided to say, well, that's nice. Appreciate your input, but this is what I think I will do. And the consequences came upon us. The world is what it is. There's gravity. There, there are all kinds of realities, and you can defy them if you want. You get hurt. It isn't because God's out to murder anyone. Mm. So God didn't say, well, the solution to human sin is I need to kill somebody. That's No, that's got it all wrong. That's not what God uh, was saying. What God was saying is I love humanity, and I want to redeem humanity, and I'll take risks, mm. and I will personally sacrifice. And if it means... Jesus dying on the cross, which is what I think this question is all about, then I'm willing to go that far. So God didn't decide to murder Jesus. Jesus decided to give his own life. In fact, he says that no one takes my life from me, he says in the gospel of John, I lay it down of my own accord. So humans will do that. You know, greater love has no man than this, uh, one of the authors in the New Testament says that except that he laid down his life for somebody else. And so it's a voluntary sacrifice, which demonstrates God's great love. And that should tell us something, because if you understand the gods in antiquity, no God would do that. Mm. Gods viewed humans as very substandard. No, no religion outside of Judaism and Christianity taught that uh, humanity was made in the image of God. No, no uh, God outside of the God of Scripture believed that human beings were made in God's image or had that kind of value. It's only in the Judeo-Christian tradition that, that God speaks of humans with love and that God does things for humans' benefit and even to the extent of suffering a painful death on the cross. And that should that should make you think, wow, that really stands out. That is unique and, and by far and away something that is just extraordinary. We've only got about three and a half minutes. I want to go to another question. Again, we're, we're grateful for you tuning in today, the Jeremiah Johnston Show. Uh, here's another question for Professor Evans. Um, and for me, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Um, that's one question. Um, and then it goes on to say that it just seems like an appeal to the violence and barbarism of the time. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Well, it, it, I think in a theoretical sense or a theological sense, he didn't have to go to the cross. He could have been beheaded. He could have been hanged. He, you know, who knows what? He could have been drowned. But uh he was accused of of treason, a form of treason, a form of sedition. He was claiming, the rumor had it, that he was the king of the Jews. 
you do that, that's a serious challenge to Caesar. It's the Roman Caesar and Senate that will decide who gets to be a king, king of the Jews or king of whatever. So Jesus was sent to the cross for what would be considered sedition at the very least, if not treason. And so he suffered the supreme penalty, which was crucifixion. So it wasn't the crucifixion itself. It wasn't the form of death that was somehow special. It was what it was. But uh, it was his willingness to die, whatever form it was, that made all the difference in the world. And so I think the Mm. early Christian movement recognized that Jesus saw it coming. Uh, He, you know, he spoke of his impending crucifixion. He celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. and, And he said, look, my death, the shedding of my blood will create this new covenant, which makes redemption possible. I want to add to that excellent answer for our questioner and just say, remember, Jesus even asked the father, is there any other way? Do I have to go to the cross? And that and that prayer was met with resounding silence. In fact, I said recently, Professor Evans, in a sermon series that I taught on unanswered prayer, in fact, the greatest answer to prayer in the Bible was God saying no to Jesus' request. Do I have to go to the cross? Matthew twenty six thirty nine. Matthew twenty six verse forty two. Um, can you just give us a, a thirty seconds on that before we have to go well, to our first break? That's an excellent example because Jesus did not want to go to the cross, or I, I would say didn't even want to die. He was willing to, and he said, "If it be your will, let this cup, this cup of suffering, pass from me." And then he went on to say, "Well, not what I want." but whatever your will is. And I think that says it all. That's, that speaks to us. God isn't out to kill anyone. God isn't out to commit murder. He asks us, well, will you trust me? And God will make it right. We've got to go to our first break. We're joined the entire hour. This is show one of another two-part series with my friend and colleague, Professor Craig Evans. You're listening to Faith Radio. This is the Jeremiah Johnson Show. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Hey, welcome back to Faith Radio. This is Jeremiah Johnston. If this is the first time that you're joining us, the kinds of discussions that you're enjoying right now are what we do every single week on the Jeremiah Johnston Show. So I want to encourage you, subscribe to our podcast. Um, Wherever you listen to on-demand programming, isn't it cool that right now you can have access to 60 or 70 hours of content that we have produced and created and pushed live through the Jeremiah Johnston Show? Um, This show is driven by your questions that you submit to us through askjjj.com. I also want to encourage you to check out christianthinkers.com. That is the website, uh, the engine that drives this ministry, Christian Thinker Society. So check out, we have all kinds of resources available to you. We're doing an entire show just on your questions. And we've been discussing, why did Jesus have to die? Um, And I want to get to another question. It all just seems so gratuitous to me. This is a question that I'm summarizing that was submitted to me through Ask JJJ. When I look at the cross, it just so much blood and guts. It just seems so gratuitous. Now, Dr. Evans, you and I have talked about the cross as this emblem of shame. Um, What is your response to someone who just thinks, you know, it's all just a little bit too much? Well, yeah, I guess reality is too much for somebody who says that we live in a very sanitized society when you think about it. Uh, Not too many people in the West, not too many people in North America starve to death. Uh, You know, not too many people are just, uh, you know, brutalized by the state and murdered 
you know, maybe it doesn't happen at all. And uh, we're used to a world like that. If somebody is pushed around, if somebody is shot and killed, we, we believe unfairly by a police officer, we go crazy. But do you realize 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, and by the way, as ancient Ro- empires go, Rome was one of the better ones. In the ancient uh, world, to be brutalized by government, to have all rights denied, to be dehumanized, to be wrongly imprisoned, to be tortured, interrogation. When the Romans interrogated you, they beat you. That's how they knew they were getting to the truth or they thought so. If a couple of people died during interrogation, tough. That's just the way it was. That's the world then. Uh, People lived only one third as long as we Mm. do today. Today, people live on into their late 70s, on into their 80s. That's the average. Uh, 2,000 years ago, it was 25 to 29 in through there. That was the average longevity. That means if you were in any village of any size, not a month went by without at least one very public, visible funeral. So people were used to seeing things that we Westerners aren't used to seeing at all. Death on almost a daily basis. The reality of starvation, all kinds of medical conditions that went untreated. Nothing could be done about it. Uh, political governments that were brutal, all kinds of injustice, all kinds of poverty. And so that just puts people in a different frame of mind altogether. We are squeaky clean. We, we have too much food to eat. We have security. We sleep in our beds at night and we're not afraid of anything. So the realities of the past startle us. When we hear about Jesus and two other men crucified, it bothers us. We think, oh, how brutal, how horrible. And it was brutal. It was horrible. But I think we need to, to, to realize we're reacting as modern Western people who are extremely sensitive and unacquainted with the realities of long ago. If you're just joining us, Dr. Evans and I, Craig Evans and I, are taking your unanswered questions that you've submitted to this radio show through AskJJJ.com. Let's talk about the theological implications of this discussion. Um, You know, the the cross looks gratuitous if I don't understand the significance of my own sin. Well, that's right. And, uh, uh, you know, what is to be done? Humanity has turned its back. Uh, on God, there are dreadful consequences, life and death consequences. And the beauty of it is, as God steps in and says, I will share those consequences with you. And so in other words, I won't just leave it on you and no way out. I will, in fact, take upon myself those consequences to create for you a way out. And that's unprecedented. It's unparalleled. No God, no deity, no power, uh, certainly no Caesar would do that or could do that for humanity. And so if you understand the full context of the past and what life was really like, you see that bigger picture. It just takes your breath away and you realize, wow, what kind of love is that? This means God really does love humanity. And of course he does. Humans were special, made in his own image, invited to fellowship with him, to participate uh, in that dance, as Tim Tim Keller, I think, puts it in a way that's very apt. And we're invited to have this fellowship with God for eternity. And so when you see it in that bigger and eternal context, 
the death on the cross becomes very meaningful. It doesn't seem gratuitous. It doesn't just seem like a needless uh, death, a needless act of violence, but something that reflects God's love for humanity. Here's a question from Victor. So I became a believer around June of this year. I didn't start feeling conviction of my sin until later on. Can you answer why that is? I want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Do we read God's word in order to fill, to fulfill that? How is it that one can walk in the Holy Spirit? Well, that's a great question. And, and of course, the fact that Victor asked that question, I think, says it speaks to the reality of his conversion. Um, there are people who become aware of their sin, and that leads to repentance and conversion. But what Victor's describing is not really that unusual, because what it what it shows is is a spiritual growth. And as the Holy Spirit reveals deeper and deeper uh, the right way to live, the right way to think, God's way of looking at things, one becomes increasingly aware of sin, shortcomings, things that need to be fixed, uh, things that need to be <clears throat> abandoned, other things that need to be embraced. And I, I would encourage Victor, if he hasn't already considered Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about the work of the flesh on the one hand and the fruit of the Spirit on the other. And uh, I have people say, well, I don't know if I'm a believer really, or I don't know, you know, where do I stand with God? I tell them, read that chapter. Uh, the Apostle Paul had experienced the Spirit the way nobody else really had. His life had been transformed. He had been in ministry by the time he writes that. He'd been in ministry uh, for about 20 years. And he talks about the work of the flesh. And you, and you read that list, the, the, the enmity, the strife, the sinful living. Then you see the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And you go right down through that catalog. And boy, I, for me, that becomes a real measuring stick. And if you realize the works of the flesh have disappeared or just about completely faded away from your life, and the fruit of the Spirit day by day are becoming more real. Mm. And, you know, then you know, hey, there is spiritual maturity going on. The Holy Spirit is present and is leading, and it shows up uh, in, in terms of those fruit of the Spirit. Excellent. Again, friends, you're listening to the Jeremiah Johnston Show. Um, this is a similar question. Thank you, Professor Evans, for these excellent answers. Uh, this is from Justin. Uh, he's 18. I've been a Christian since I was a kid. I still don't quite understand salvation, though. How can I be assured that I'm saved? The Bible talks about how we are saved by Christ's death and resurrection, but it also talks about being predestined. Uh, so if God chooses to save me, and if, so if God chooses people to save and salvation is not from faith, how am I saved? I'm just a little confused. Well, good, good question. Uh, and the fact that you're asking these kinds of questions suggests that there is a spiritual sensitivity uh, that's shaping your thinking because uh, people who are uh, fleshly and have no spirit within them don't even ask these questions. Predestined, of course, without getting into a long theological and exegetical answer, uh, of course, you're alluding to mostly Romans chapter 9, where Paul talks about that. But the predestination uh, has to do with what God's will is for your life as you grow in faith. That's what it's really about. And it's good that you're wrestling with it because it's God's will that you become, become conformed to the image of his son. Uh, 
So it's God's will that you become more Christ-like. That's what you want to do. And Paul talks about this in other letters, too, the Corinthian letters, for example. So I go back to what I said a moment ago about Galatians. If you see the works of the flesh that Paul identifies in Galatians 5 disappearing from your life, fading away, becoming, you know, just they aren't happening, and uh, you see the fruit of the Spirit growing, that's that's a good indicator that, you know, you, you the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you are saved. Billy Graham was asked this once. You know, when I was in Israel, it was wonderful. I had Jerry Jenkins, uh, mm. one of the greatest all-time selling, uh, uh, best-selling authors in Christendom. Jerry has published 195 books, two-thirds of them novels, one-third of them uh, nonfiction, including Billy Graham's biography, autobiography, Just As I Am. And uh, Jerry was with uh, uh, Billy Graham in his home on again, off again for more than a year got to know him very well personally. And one time he asked uh, Reverend Graham this very question, your question. He just says, how do I know that I'm growing in faith? What should I do to know that I'm growing in faith? And what do you do, uh, Mr. Graham? And Billy Graham said, I pray without ceasing and I search the scriptures. Hmm. And Jerry said, you pray without, without ceasing? He says, yes. He said, I'm praying now. Mm. while I'm talking with you and making sure that I'm, you know, getting it right and, you know, and so on, very much in step with God's will. Well, I wonder if, if lots of Christians just don't, they don't pray very often and they don't search the scriptures. And of course, uh, um, Jeremiah Johnson and I together with many others are very concerned about biblical illiteracy in right. the church, not just in the general public. And, uh, there would not be biblical illiteracy if people were daily searching the scriptures. And so I think uh, Billy Graham's uh, response to Jerry Jenkins many years ago, to over 20 years ago, is is very helpful and applies to Justin's question, too. If you're searching the scriptures and praying without uh, without ceasing, the whole question about salvation will fade away. You will know you're in God's hands and you will know you're growing in faith. Here's a question from Jason. We have quite a few on salvation. Um, my understanding is that as Christians, our sin and guilt is imputed to Christ who bears that sin and guilt and pays the penalty. In turn, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So in Christ, we're righteous, declared to be so by God. Can you please clarify what the righteousness of Christ is that is imputed to us? Is it the righteousness of his divine nature? Is it the righteousness of obedience to the law of Moses? Is it the righteousness of his obedience to the moral law? Is it his sinlessness or is it something else? Great question from Jason. Well, Jason, you sound like a theologian. Yeah. <laughs> I, I must say I'm very impressed. Uh, the way you framed your question suggested to me you, you, you've read Romans 5 yeah. and 6 pretty well and, know, and uh, understand Paul's theology. The righteousness uh, sometimes is paraphrased as right standing. And so the righteousness of Christ means if it's been in if it's shifted or it's been transferred from Jesus to you as it is as a believer, you you stand before God innocent. You know, it's a right standing before God. It doesn't mean that you can live as perfectly as Jesus or that you never make a mistake or never sin. It just means that when you stand before God, you are declared not guilty. 
you are innocent, you are righteous, and you can you can stand with confidence in the presence of God. That's what that's what this righteousness of Christ is that's uh that's been given to you because you've accepted it from him you've embraced it it's freely offered and i think a great way of the uh, there's so many questions on salvation and assurance repentance um the way that i look at this is we often hear christ died for me another way of looking at it is christ died instead of me he took all of the shame. He took the guilt, as Professor Evans said, and he died instead of me so that we can have life. The gospel is two facts. And how do we know the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15. And remember, Paul, if you study the book of Galatians, went back up to Jerusalem. He wanted to make sure he had the gospel right, and he did. He said, I, was, I checked out. I have the gospel right. And so when we read in 1 Corinthians 15, now this is the gospel that Christ died for our sins that he was buried and that he rose from the grave. That is the gospel. Two facts. Jesus paid for my sin and he rose again. What is your current posture towards that? And if you're trusting in that, you're a Christian. We've got to go to a break. We're taking your questions at askjjj.com. This is the Jeremiah Johnston Show. We're joined by our great guest, Professor Craig Evans. And I want to encourage you to check out his website, craigevans.com. We'll be right back with more of your questions. This hour is moving right along today on the Jeremiah Johnston Show. We're ta- doing nothing but taking your questions that have been submitted to askjjj.com. You might call these Bible difficulties. They're just great Bible questions. And by the way, some of you sound like you're uh, in seminary training. I'm really enjoying these excellent questions. Um, Dr. Evans, you had a thought over the commercial break that you wanted to share related to these questions about righteousness, the cross, atonement. Can you just revisit those for us? Well, yes, uh, we've had three, at least three questions questions from Bob, from Justin, and from Jason asking questions about Jesus's death on the cross or uh, salvation or what does it mean to be uh, righteous and that sort of thing. Remember, all of this is informed by the Old Testament sacrificial system. So when uh, Jesus himself speaks and says to the disciples, you know, in reference to this cup of wine that they're going to share, this is the blood of the covenant. You know, this is, and it's in my, it's in my blood shed for you. Uh, he's alluding to uh, the the establishment of the Sinai covenant in Exodus 24. He's alluding to the promise of the new covenant that Jeremiah 31 speaks about. And so if you don't understand the Old Testament thinking behind the shedding of an animal's blood for sacrifice, you're not going to get it. The, the, the New Testament thing, you're going to wonder, well, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? What is, I don't get it. His shedding of his blood, what's that all about? But basically, in a real simple way, there's a little more to it than this, but in its very simplest form, the, uh, when the human beings sinned, and the sin was a life and death matter. Hmm. And that gets then portrayed in, in the death of the animal, the sacrificial animal. His blood is shed instead of yours. His life is given up on the altar instead of yours. And so what God is saying, he's saying two things. Uh, sin results in death, but because I'm uh, gracious... 
I'll accept the death of this sacrificial animal. So it's a, it's a very teaching moment. And so that's what's presupposed. So sin ultimately results in death, but God is gracious. But what makes Jesus's death so extraordinary, it isn't the death of an animal. It's the death of God's son. And so that just takes it up into a whole new level. And that's why the author of Hebrews, speaking for all of Christendom, can say, hey, with his death, sacrificial death, it never has to be repeated. Mm. That's it. Forget about it. You don't need the blood from bulls and goats anymore. It's all over with. And and, uh, historically, we see it, uh, you know, the the temple is destroyed. uh, just 40 years later. And it's like history puts its stamp of approval uh, or you might say endorsement on what Jesus talked about and what happened to Jesus. So Christians said, look, Jesus's death ends it. There is no more sacrificial death needed. And within the generation, Jesus's prophecy is fulfilled. The temple and its altar are destroyed and it comes to an end. Mm. Again, friends, we're taking your questions today, the entire hour on questions submitted to askjjj.com. We're joined by Professor Craig Evans. I want to encourage you to go to his website, craigaevans.com, where you're going to see links to all of his books, published works, videos, maybe speaking in a city near you. So definitely connect with him as well on social media, his public Facebook page, Twitter as well. Um, We're taking more questions here. Uh, Dr. Evans, we've got an interesting question. I hope you don't mind me putting you on the spot, but this this relates to polytheism evolving to monotheism, a question. Um, And Alan writes, I'm currently doing my master's in religious studies at a secular university, UNE Australia. Currently, I'm studying ancient Near Eastern religions, followed by Roman and Greek paganism. A recurrent theme and assumption is that is assumption is that Israel's belief naturally evolved from polytheism to monotheism. I do not share this view, but I want to present an academically well-presented counter argument. Consequently, I wondered if you could recommend some sources for me, uh, even academic literature that might refute this view. And the view, again, to be clear, is that Israel's belief naturally evolved from polytheism to monotheism. Hey, great question. I appreciate that. Uh, There are two parts to the answer. Uh, Yes and no. And here, let me explain. Uh, And you can go to Jeremiah Johnston's book. He does touch on this. Uh, Check out the footnotes, by the way. There are two books for the price of one. You've got the uh, popular, (laughs) you know, the chapters. They read so easy and they're fun to read. That's right. They're brilliant, but they're fun to read. And then you've got the footnotes, and that's where German titles start showing up. French. There's Greek, yeah, (laughs) and and Hebrew. Well, if you, you read in there, uh, I know that book inside and out. I've read it several times and, and read some of the material and, and dialogued with Dr. Johnson as he was writing it. And uh, the actual view, uh, is, there's a very important book that came out in the 1890s, I believe, and it really exasperated Sigmund Freud because it refuted his entire anthropological foundation for his views, which now, of course, are widely seen as very faulty. And that is humans were monotheists to begin with. 
And so polytheism is a corruption. It's a splintering, a fragmentation of monotheism. So you end up with competing gods warring with each other. And that's what helps make the mess. That's why humans get into the problem deeper and deeper. Well, the book of Genesis clearly reflects that. You know, the mm. earliest humans were, were monotheists. But what happens in the passage of time is you get you get multiple gods. Well, that's your God over there, but I have my God over here. And when you fracture the Godhead, then you end up with competing moral systems, competing laws, com competing ethics. And that's very suitable because most humans like buffets mm. and they want to, well, I'd like a little of this and a little of that, but no, I don't want to eat my vegetables. I just want to get the goodies over here. It's so human. And that's what humans did. That's why uh, uh, Ludwig Feuerbach infamously, but not entirely wrongly stated mm -hmm. uh, that uh, uh, God is made in man's image. And of course, on one level, it's outrageous. But on one level, he's right. There is that tendency for humans to make God into their own image. And that means lots of images, lots of different gods. And you have polytheism. But on the historical level, uh, there, it is true. There's a struggle to move away from polytheism to monotheism. But that's a correction. And that's where Moses, Moses has to see the burning bush. He has to meet God. He has to sense and hear God's voice. He has to be told, I am the Lord. And these other gods aren't even there. And he has a hard time believing that. The people of Israel that leave Egypt have a very hard time uh, disengaging from the polytheism of Egypt and, of course, the polytheism they encounter everywhere in the Middle East. The prophets come through Israel's history and constantly remind them that the Lord, he is God, not these other gods, not the Baals of the Canaanites, not Marduk, not, you know, uh, uh, Moth, and not this guy and that guy and all the rest of these gods. There are hundreds and hundreds of gods in the ancient Near East. And so, the, you know, so your question's a great question. Humans started out as monotheists, turned into polytheists. God enters the polytheistic mess, this babble of conflicting voices and opinions. And he says, look, I am God. I am the one who is. God doesn't have a name. He's God. He's not Marduk. He's not this or that. He's the one who is Yahweh, he who is uh, calls to Abraham, if do what I'm saying. I'll make a great people of you. I'll give you a land. He says to Moses, I am the God of, of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and so on. I'm going to work through you. I'm going to save this people and they will be my people. I will be their God. And it'll become a spiritual, like a lighthouse for the entire world. And that's what God has been doing ever since. I love, I love it, friends. We're running out of time. Don't you just love this conversation? And I appreciate the question, too. And I appreciate Dr. Evans citing my book, Unimaginable. You do ask for citations here in your question. My book, Unima and this is for Alan's question. Uh, for, he's asking specifically for sources. Check out Unimaginable, what the world would be like without Christianity. In chapter one, I discuss our sense of the divine. Um, I also discuss this in my PhD thesis 
Thesis as well, which is now published uh, in the Jewish and Christian text series put out by Bloomsbury number 21. There's also a fascinating discussion and photos of a Neolithic temple of Gobekli Tepe by Charles C. Mann's article in National Geographic, number 214, uh, 214, number 6, published in June 2011, uh, pages 34 to 59, that support this whole notion that civilization originally are monotheists. It's really fascinating. It's interesting. Uh, final thought on that before we move on, Dr. Evans. Well, that I'm glad you referred to Mann's uh, essay in National Geographic. Everybody knows National Geographic is not a religious magazine. It does not necessarily endorse theism, and uh, but it does endorse science and archaeology and anthropology and so on. And this discovery 10 years ago, it's been ongoing excavations. And what it shows is the idea of God did not emerge when humans got together and created civilization and hierarchy developed. It's the other way around. The belief in God pulled people together who sensed the need to find God, to worship God. And so our oldest known structure, man-made structure, which dates to perhaps as old as 10,000 B.C., Mm. which is staggering. It is located today in southeast Turkey. And what is it? It's a temple where people came together, and in order to build the temple, they had to get organized, had to be civilized, had to create civilization. So it just, in my view, is one more support for the biblical record. It's a fascinating support. Um, Dr. Evans, we're, we're running out of time. We only have about two minutes. But can you just talk about how important questions are in the Christian life, engaging questions as we've been doing for this entire broadcast today? Questions are very important. That's exactly what we tell a Ph.D. student. A Ph.D. student says, I want to write a dissertation. I want to get a Ph.D. And we say, that's great. You've got to come up with a good question. A research question. Questions are wonderful because when you ask a question, and it's an honest question, you're open for new information. You're open to the truth. And uh, the Christian faith is all focused on truth, not some kind of a dogma that you want to defend no matter what the facts say. There's an openness to the truth. And to get at truth, you ask questions. Are you there? What is true? I mean, God will answer people who uh, come to him in prayer and ask for wisdom, ask for knowledge, ask for insight. And so I love questions. I think they're good. They're biblical. And uh, it's what we as human beings do. It's what we should do. Friends, we're going to be back next week with part two of Dr. Evans and I discussing your unanswered questions, uh, providing insights, biblical insights, practical application, other books and resources that you can read. In doing that, Dr. Evans, uh, before we go, tell us what you're working on right now. What are you writing? Well, I've got a book coming out. It's uh, just beginning to work its way through the press. It's called Jesus and the Manuscripts. It's about the oldest gospel manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts about Jesus that we have, not just the Greek ones, but in other languages, too. I even have a chapter relating to the Koran. And so I look forward to it coming out uh, sometime in the spring of 2020. All right, friends, I'm going to be back after this final break with um, final thoughts on today's exciting discussion. And again, two-part study, two-part series. We're going to be back next week taking your questions with Professor Craig A. Evans. Be sure and check him out online. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to the Jeremiah Johnson Show. I'm just so excited about the conversation today. And um, some of you who listen to this program with any regularity will 
know that Craig Evans has been a regular guest um, on our show. And I just want to remind you that I met Craig 12 years ago now doing my first master's degree. Uh, He came in to teach a wonderful seminar on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I was one of the many people that stayed late to shake his hand. I offered to take him back to the hotel or airport. I just I wanted to drive him somewhere so I could be his Uber and just get to know him better. And, you know, it was one of those God moments that truly changed my life because little did I know at the time when I met him. And golly, I'm just doing the math. It may be more than 12 years ago now that I met Dr. Evans. Um, Little did I know then how God would use Dr. Evans in my life. And ultimately, he became my doctor father. Um, He found this amazing program at Oxford where I could get a Ph.D. from Middlesex University, but study residentially in Oxford at the Bodleian with the ancient manuscripts, uh, the precious, precious both biblical and extra biblical manuscripts that they have in the Bodleian Library, but make it to where Dr. Evans was my primary doctoral advisor. Um, What a blessing it was. What a time in my life of mentorship and growth. And of course, I ended up publishing my PhD thesis, a 93,000 word thesis on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And now Dr. Evans and I do fun things like we write books together. You might've checked out our book we did on Islam, or we had a book just released, Uh, two months ago called Scribes and Their Remains on the Longevity of Ancient Manuscripts. That's that's the chapter he contributed um, and what that has to say to us about how long our New Testament autographs likely survived. I did a a chapter on the treatment of women and children. Um, So it's great that we do work together today. And so I guess my message is to you, be faithful with the relationships God brings in your path. You never know (laughs) what God's plan is going to be when he brings someone across your steps. And so I think the world moves at the speed of relationships. So be faithful with those fun relationships that God brings. Be willing to go out of your comfort zone like I did. Be an Uber for someone if you need to. Um, And you just watch how the Spirit of God works to gel those wonderful relationships. We're going to be back next week answering more of your random, wonderful, unanswered questions. Uh, This is the Jeremiah Johnston Show and Faith Radio Network. And I do want to ask you, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We're pretty much available on all the major podcast channels. I would love for you to connect with us there, as well as the Faith Radio Network website, where you can see all of the past blogs of our programs. So much for joining us. And we'll see you next time on The Jeremiah Johnston Show. Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Thanks for listening to the podcast from The Jeremiah Johnston Show. I definitely want to hear from you. So if you have a follow-up question from today's program, you can submit it to me at www.askjjj.com. You'll also see how you can connect with us from there across social media. And don't forget, these conversations are available because of listener support. And you can make a gift right now to the Faith Radio Network at www.myfaithradio.com. And to avoid missing future editions of The Jeremiah Johnston Show, please subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. You can do a Google Play RSS feed. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of the program.